0: Welcome to Accession. Today, we're at the Worcester Art Museum. If you're entering the museum from the Mosaic Court, start up the stairs, but go neither right nor left. Instead, go forward towards the head of Mentuhotep. If you've come in from the side entrance through the restaurant, head down instead of up. And if you continue straight, you should be looking at the giant hat on Mentuhotep's head with a chip off the top. If Mentuhotep were to look behind him and to his right, your left, He sees a fae happy, sitting down on the job, then a relief sculpture of a man who is clearly not relieved, and finally, a glass case with three objects in it. Let's focus on the glass case, and more, let's focus on the man in the skirt who sits at the base of the display. This statuette is one of the oldest pieces in the museum, one of the reasons the Wham can claim to have over 50 centuries of art, and the subject of our episode. Today, we're looking at Worcester Art Museum, accession, year 1937, number 91, Sumerian Statuette. Now, if you read the card, it'll tell you that the piece came from an excavation from a temple in Kafaj, north of Baghdad, that we think it might be a god because of what we know about beards in early Sumerian culture, that it is carved from limestone, and that the eyes are made of inset shells. For this reason, for the duration of this story, let's call him Shelley. What it fails to mention about our dear friend Shelley is that this Shelley does not have eyes made of inset shells. Shelley has one eye. The other one is missing. Where there should be an eye is just an empty space, like a black eye, perhaps earned in the same brawl that seems to have broke his now crooked nose. But maybe Shelley doesn't make you think of some ancient Sumerian's brawling. Maybe instead your thoughts of a one-eyed god take you to the Norse depiction of Odin, the king of Asgard, who would give up anything, even an eye, in his quest for wisdom and knowledge? Or perhaps you think of the more modern iteration of Thor in the Marvel movies, who, in his most recent installment, lost an eye in a duel to his sister, likening him to his father. Perhaps the single eye makes you think of the all-knowing eye that tops the pyramid that backs our dollars. Or maybe you think of the eye that is shared by the grey eye, the Greek sisters who would form the basis of the witches in Macbeth and who would be mixed with the fates, the Moira, in the 1997 Disney film Hercules. The present, and future indoor plumbing. It's gonna be big. Whether you think of the Cyclops, or the Jean, or the Dalek, or Sheldon Plankton, or Nick Fury, no matter what you think of as you look upon Shelley, our one-eyed friend, I can almost certainly assure you that the person who first saw a slab of limestone, and thought to use a chisel to carve out this figure, and thought to carve a pattern into the hem of his dress, and thought to give him a beard and clasp his hands together on his stomach, That person almost certainly did not think of any of the same things you just did. And that thought may give us pause. Are we doing this wrong? Have we approached this from the wrong mindset? We've only made connections to the gods because the card has told us that beards were often associated with religion, and we know it was excavated from a temple. We only know that it's Sumerian, or that it comes from Kafaj, because the card told us. We only know that this is probably something that we should be looking at because it's in a museum, in a glass case, with a card by it. We know nothing of what the Sumerians thought about him, how he was used, whether it was art, or religious icon, or both, what he might have meant to someone over 50 centuries ago. How can a living person now, walking through the Worcester Art Museum, with all these other thoughts about things with one eye, ever hope to understand what the statuette meant? Or can they ever hope to understand what he meant all those centuries ago? And without knowing something about that, is there a reason for us to care about him, barring the humorous images and stories his one eye may bring to mind? There are only a handful of things we can know for sure about Shelley. It turns out Shelley is not alone, that with him beneath the floor of that temple in Caffage were just as many sculptures like him. Some men, some women, some with beards, some without, all with skirts, all on pedestals, all in some slight variation of the pose you see in front of you, standing straight, head up, hands clasped and resting on their navel. It's not a very natural pose to strike. If you feel inclined, give it a try. Some of them short, some of them tall, but all of them with those wide eyes made of inset shells, or eye, as the case is with Shelley. In art, the history of a piece, who has owned it, who has sold it, who has bought it, is known as its provenance, and in archaeology the provenance tends to be pretty short. We know that this piece came to Worcester from the collection at the University of Pennsylvania, and that the University of Pennsylvania acquired it in one of their many archaeological digs in Iraq in the mid-1930s, and that in their museum, and in their collection, exist many, many more statues just like this. What we do know much more about is how Shelley was received in the West, and rather than tracing the provenance of who Shelley was owned by, We can actually trace the sort of provenance of how Shelley was written about, and in turn how Shelley was thought about. In fact, after the discovery of the King Tut tomb in 1922, there was a bit of a craze surrounding archaeology, and the Assyriologists and Babyloniophiles rode this wave as best they could, Archaeologists like Charles Leonard Woolley, who was responsible for many of the excavations in Iraq, including the temples of Ur, would argue that because the ancient Near Easterns had defeated the Egyptians, there was a superiority to their crafts and artifacts. As well, the names of the cities in the ancient Near East often came up in the Bibles that folks back home were reading. Ur was often referred to as Abraham City, and every attempt was made to suggest that Abraham may have seen the procession of Queen Pu'abi, a woman whose headdress was excavated in Ur. The media around these excavations was heavily focused on stirring the imagination of the consumer. One reads... Golden treasures from Ur, remarkable discoveries of royal relics in the ancient Chaldrian city many centuries older than King Tutankhamun's famous tomb in Egypt. Accompanied by a full-page spread of colored images, including the diadem of Puabi on a mannequin, with eyes that look quite like Shelley's, though both intact, contrasted with very modern makeup. Still, others read, evidence that the queen of ancient Ur was clubbed to death! and ancient queen used rouge and lipstick. But the source of this sensationalism was not the western media. It was Woolley. Woolley knew his audience. America in the time of the 1920s, a nation in a time of wealth and liberation rebelling against a system that was telling them not to have fun. The same spirit is harnessed in the way that Woolley talks about Mesopotamia. He conjured up for his readers, his audience, a place of opulence, far better than sandy, dirty old Egypt, where tragedy and royalty, opulence and murder, extravagance and rebellion were all a part of daily life. And the people in the 1920s could connect to that. Woolley perfectly understood the aesthetic and spirit of his time down to the style of lipstick he put on the bust, and used that spirit to connect the world to the aesthetic and spirit of another time, some 50 centuries earlier. Of course, not everyone was so interested in the imagination of the viewer, and this is where our story returns to Shelley. When Shelley came to the Worcester Art Museum from the University of Pennsylvania, he was accompanied by an essay, a letter of introductions of sorts to be published in the museum's annual magazine, written by Charles Bach, the assistant curator of the Babylonian collection at the University of Pennsylvania Museum, titled, A Note on Some Sumerian Sculpture. He begins his essay with a quote from Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Since then, he writes, Man has been doing the same thing to God. Bach continues on this path about man and God and art before finally arriving at the same question we are asking today. Quote, Man's concept of God has a small place here. For how are we to know what a sculptor was thinking when he, a Babylonian, secured of a shrewd trader from Assyria a chunk of limestone? We can but see what he created. It is perhaps time for the archaeologist, the art critic, the archaeologist's critic, and the art critic's critic to stop assigning meaning to every creation, and simply look at what there is to look at. Without saying so explicitly, Bach is suggesting what we might call art appreciation by aesthetics, and this comes out of the way that he proceeds to talk about Shelley. No effort has been made by the artist to bring out the muscular. He has ignored, evidently on purpose, details in the treatment of the other body parts. Facial features are given undue proportion to the The full. eyes and nose are enlarged to the point of grotesqueness. And this, a view which aims to focus on the aesthetics of the past, stands, in a way, antithetical to a way of talking about art that supports and encourages the imagination of the present. And... It is this philosophy which has continued to dominate the writing about this piece that has occurred over the past several decades. Continued descriptions of strength, enlarged eyes, suggesting intensity, devotion, and always with a footnote about how the beard might suggest something religious or godlike about this man though it has not been proven. And in all of these articles, the same picture of Shelley turned just to the right to show off his good side, the side with the eye. This is the school of thought that says that the sculpture has everything to say in the way it is. That it possesses some special kind of magic in its form and shape and expression that will communicate to the viewer all that the viewer needs to know. It was this sort of analysis of these Sumerian pieces, and of Shelley, that inspired modern artists like Willem de Kooning and Henry Moore, seeking to tap into the origin of the human desire to sculpt. the initial creative energies of the human species. If those names don't sound familiar to you, don't worry, we'll come back to them in another episode. But if we take this viewpoint, if we look at Shelley as a sculpture first, whose form precedes his function, then we give Shelley this position of artwork, even if his initial position was not to be art. And herein lies the primary trouble at the heart of Shelley. Is he a piece of art or is he a piece of history? Are we better off understanding what little we can about his time in Kafaj, even if we don't know much? Or are we better off seeing him as one of the earliest versions of man's desire to sculpt the human form? And where will our imagination take us if we follow either path? Is it wrong of us to buy into Woolley's marketing ploys, and imagine the society of Sumeria more complexly, if not a little fantastically? And where do you? and your imagination fall in how you view Shelley? These are big questions in the world of art, questions we certainly can't hope to have definitive answers to simply by looking at a very old statuette. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know exactly what the Sumerian person thought when he carved this statue. We don't know if he thought it was art, or if it had some religious use. We don't know if the eyes were carved wide to show devotion, or if that was just the aesthetic of the time. We don't know if this stance is meant to strike us with power, or strength, or reverence. We don't know if this figure was there when some queen was bludgeoned in ritual sacrifice, or if it sat alone in a room for hundreds of years, until an earthquake knocked it off the shelf and buried it. But we can be sure of two things. The first thing that we can be sure of is that Despite being quite unsure about a lot of things surrounding this Sumerian, there's a lot here to care about. A figure carved by a human, with care and attention to detail, alongside other figures of a similar aesthetic, which was eventually buried by human or by nature, which was later pulled out of the ground, rediscovered and carefully cleaned by some Western researcher, who took it from its home to a new world, to the new world, to Philadelphia, where some curator at the Worcester Art Museum reached out to the university looking for a piece for its collection. And here it is today, presumably with you and hundreds of other patrons taking a moment to pause and look at his one eye and wonder. And that's the other thing we can be sure of, that whenever any person comes here to this place, and sees Shelley, their imagination must wonder about that eye. We know that when the curator for the WAM acquired the sculpture it was missing the eye, and the university told the museum not to ask for the eye because they didn't have it. We don't know if the eye was there when the statuette flew across the ocean, far from its home, or if it was there as it was dug up from the ground, or if it's still lying in the dirt under the temple. Or if it was lost in some scuffle in Sumeria thousands of years ago. Or if the sculptor ever put an eye on it in the first place. Well, we're pretty sure there was an eye there at some point. But you get the picture. And we can be sure that every human who has looked at Shelley in all his time being without a right eye has stopped and imagined. And brought with them all the cultural artifacts that they carry of a man, or a god, or a beast with one eye. The human imagination, however inconsistent, is really the only constant we can be assured of. And so, while we know the ancients probably weren't thinking of superhero movies, there is one way that every single person along Shelley's story the ancients, and the architects, and the scholars, and the curators, and the viewers one way that every one of those people might have viewed Shelley's missing eye, one thought that may have come to mind, which is expressed perfectly in a poem written by Morris Bishop for The New Yorker in 1952, when he was one such patron to the Worcester Art Museum. It goes like this. This is the sapient cynic. This is he... Whom the superior youth would wish to be. He looked with tranquil and satiric humor upon the pride of Akkad and of Sumer. Sumer and Akkad fell to Babylon. The sapient cynic smiled sedately on. Assyria ruled, and the Mede and Persian, and their successions brought him much diversion. The Greek The Roman raised their golden thrones, the Arab caliphs built upon their bones. The Mongol came and did his bloody work. The sapient cynic smiled upon the Turk. Iraq arose, and he became the guest of the naive barbarians of the West. Now he observes the gaping public pass before his humorous eye in Worcester Mass. Long did I gaze upon him, and I think, nay, I am certain that I saw him wink. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Accession. Our special thanks this week goes out to the library staff at the Worcester Art Museum, who helped me find the poem that you heard at the end of the show, and who are very supportive of my work as I pour through their stacks and files. Also to the many Wham! staff who aided me in my quest to find the oldest piece of art in the collection. Believe it or not, there is a piece that is potentially a little older than Shelley, but I'll leave finding that up to you. That delightful drum piece you hear in the intro and are listening to now? Mike Harmon played the drums, and Casey Dawson provided his recording, engineering, and editing talents. You can follow his work at facebook.com slash Sound. Our show art was made by the incomparable V. Silverman, whose portfolio you can find at vcsilverman.com. You should also listen to their delightfully wonderful podcast, Fuzzy Logic. It brings much joy to my fortnightly Wednesday commutes. This episode was produced, written, recorded, and edited by me, T.H. Ponders. You can follow me most places at T.H. Ponders, and the show on Twitter and Instagram at AccessionFM. And as always, you can find the notes to the show, links to the art, and maybe a few other goodies on our website at accession.fm.